How you guys doing this morning? Well, you probably woke up and thought it was August today with the uh, warm weather. I know some of you have your beach towels in your uh, trunk ready to go to the beach today. Maybe, maybe not quite yet, right? But it's a beautiful day, and I don't know about you, but when I wake up and the sun is shining like that, I'm reminded of God's goodness and his faithfulness and his love toward us. And there's no other place that I'd rather be at this moment than here with you, worshiping God with his people. And so welcome here this morning. Uh, Like Mandy said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to anybody that might be visiting with us for the first time or see a few new faces here. Thank you so much for being here with us. And special welcome to anybody who might be listening to us through our website or our podcast. You're welcome to come and worship with us here on Sunday morning. Well, I want to begin this morning with a question, and that question is, have you ever felt like an outsider? Have you ever felt like an outsider? Now, there's a small percentage of people in this room that have no clue what I'm talking about. You're cooler than the other side of the pillow, and the word outsider, not fitting in, doesn't quite register. You're trying to Google that right now just to get a reference for what I'm talking about. And I'm not talking about the special people in the room. I'm talking about the the regular people. I'm talking about those of us who have, at some point in their life, felt like they didn't quite fit in. And maybe this question takes you back to your school days, and maybe you moved to a new city, or you went to a different school, and you didn't know anybody at the school, and you didn't feel like you quite fit in. Uh, Maybe you didn't fit in with the cool kids, maybe you didn't fit in with the jocks, Or maybe you wanted to fit in with the the smart kids and do the science fairs and the spelling bees. You couldn't quite break into uh, that group. Or maybe you're thinking about your work life. Lots of your coworkers have lots and lots of things in common. They just sort of laugh at the water cooler. And as soon as you come to get a part of the action, everybody leaves. Uh, Maybe you don't fit in at work. Maybe you're don't quite fit in with your neighbors, and you want to fit in with your neighbors, and maybe your neighbors get nice stuff. They're always having work done on the house. They've got luxury car after luxury car every, you know, driveway, and you've got your, you know, 1991 Mercury Sable uh, with the tape on the door, and you've always wanted to quite fit in with your neighbors, but you don't quite fit in. Maybe you remember when you came to faith and when you came to know Jesus. What a wonderful feeling that was, but you also realized that you had to give up a whole bunch of stuff And in giving up a whole bunch of stuff, you became sort of on the outside of your friendship circles, on the outside of what the hip kids were doing, and you just sort of felt on the outside of things. Being on the outside doesn't feel good. And it's especially true because we live in a world where it's easy to otherize people. It's easy to put people in categories and boxes. In fact, you can put people in a room or on an island together, everybody's the same, same age, same skin color, same every discernible thing, and I give them about a week before they're trying to figure out who's better than who. Give them a week to try to find something different, something other to set somebody apart from the other person, right? We're preference-driven people, and as preference-driven humans, we are governed by our preferences and we're governed by our comforts. As such, it's easy for us to demonize and dismiss somebody as weird or off or out there. And I got news for you. You are somebody's weird person. (laughs) They might not have told you, but somebody is ducking your calls. I know you think they're busy or they're in a meeting. No, they, they are not taking your calls because you are weird to them. Somebody sees your post on social media and they grimace because they find you annoying. I know, I'm not talking to you, I'm talking about somebody maybe sitting next to you. You are somebody's weird, annoying person. And that's helpful to remember when we're dealing with people who are on the outside of life. Some of you remember who you were before you came to know Jesus. And you remember how other you felt or how much on the outside you felt when you interacted with well-meaning Christians. They made it a point to remind you that you weren't quite, you weren't quite there yet. They made it a point to remind you maybe intentionally or unintentionally that you were on the outside of things and that didn't make you feel good. That didn't want, make you want to press into the kingdom things. Actually, quite, quite honestly, probably made you want to avoid Christians altogether. You Remember what it felt like to be 
on the outside. You remember what it felt like to be lost, to be broken, to be what some might consider a scoundrel, right? Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that God has a special place in his heart for the outside, particularly those who are on the outside of the faith. God has a special place in his heart for the broken, a special place in his heart for the scoundrel. And if we're going to work on his behalf and build for the kingdom in our particular spheres of life that he's given us to steward, then we need to develop a heart for the outsider. We need to develop a heart for the lost, a heart for the scoundrel, remembering who we were before Christ and his love found us. And I feel like this concept, this whole idea of loving and leaning toward the outsider fits snugly in a series that we started uh, almost two months ago. And it's a series that we've been calling Devoted. Uh, we didn't, when we planned the calendar for this year, didn't plan to stay in this series for so long. But the Lord just keeps giving us more and more things. Not to mention, uh, many of you have just reflected the Lord really brings some transformation and bringing awareness to your heart through this series. And I just want to say uh, that I would love to hear, if you have a testimony, we came through our 30-day fast, we've been in this series, I've been hearing little testimonies here and there. If you have uh, something that you'd like to share, a testimony that God has done something, he's challenged you, he's moved in your heart in a way that moved you toward transformation. Listen, I'd love to hear that. Would you share that with me? My email address is Gino, G-E-N-O, at southsuburbanvineyard.org. Gino at southsuburbanvineyard.org. If you take some time this week, it doesn't have to be long and involved. I just would love to hear what the Lord is doing through this series. But we've been in this series called Devoted, and I've said week after week that this is a great word to describe our lives as Christians, followers of Jesus. And I realize that some of you are not, you don't identify as followers of Jesus. You're just here checking it out, and that's totally fine. We're glad that you're here. But many of us here identify as followers of Jesus, and this word devoted really sums up what our life is supposed to be like. We've defined devoted as to give all or a large part of oneself, your time, your energy, and effort to someone or something. And we've said that devotion looks like Love, loyalty, and enthusiasm for the things that you are devoted to. I'll say that again. It looks like love. It looks like loyalty. It looks like enthusiasm to and for the things that you uh, are, are devoted to. And what we've said week after week is that Jesus is asking us as followers of Jesus, particularly those of us who take this seriously, to lean into the things that are important to him. To lean into the things that he finds important. And this is a game changer for many of us because we're used to leaning into the things that we find interesting. Leaning into the things that meet our emotional needs. Leaning into the things that scratch our emotional itches. And when we come into the kingdom, the Lord flips that on the upside down and says, listen, this is the list of things that I find important. This is the list of things that you're to lean toward. And not just lean toward them, but love them. Be loyal to them. And have some enthusiasm for the things that God loves. We've talked about a bunch of things from Christian community, engaging Christian community, cultivating a healthy soul, engaging the word, being devoted to it, devoted to accountability. Last week we talked about being devoted to being good stewards of our financial resource. And today we'll continue this series by talking about being devoted to the outsider. Being devoted to the outsider. I'm going to challenge you a little bit this morning. might upset you a little bit this morning. I love you, uh, but I'm coming down your aisle this morning because the outsider is very, very important to God. He should be important to us. So what disposition should we have as it relates to those who are on the outside of the faith or on the outside of what we consider to be cool and happening as it relates to the kingdom? How should we regard them? Well, I think Jesus does it perfectly. And we're going to look at a a passage of scripture that really gives us a really good template for relating to and being devoted to reaching the outside. Would you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 19? Um, Luke chapter 19. There are Bibles, by the way, on the edges of your rows. Feel free to use those today. If you don't have a Bible at home that you can understand, feel free to take one of those as our gift uh, to you. We'll also be projecting the words on the screens this morning. Feel free also to follow us, uh, follow along in your uh, tablets or on your phones. Luke chapter 19, while you find that, let me pray. 
Dear Jesus, I thank you so much for, um, for saving me. We thank you for saving us, Lord. We remember uh, what, what, what it was like before you, you, you found us. Remember who we used to be, how lost and broken and aimless we were, Lord. We thank you for your love and kindness that is better than life itself. And so, Father, we ask this morning that you would download your heart into ours, that you help us understand the value that you have and that you see in those who are on the outside. But may we lay our preferences down, when we lay our biases down, uh, we lay all these things down, Lord, at the foot of the cross today, and we say, Lord, teach us. Father, you set the table this morning. We will put our legs under it. We will eat whatever you put on the table. Would you just set the table for us this morning, Lord, so that we might uh, consume what you have for us? Remember, we're reminded, Lord, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so, Lord, would you move anything that would cause us to be offended or to bristle at the truth? Father, help us to be humble and receive this. Put power in these words that you've given me to speak. Move the preacher out of the way so that your truth and light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 19. We're going to start at verse 1. And it's helpful to understand what's happened before this passage that we're about to read. Jesus, true to form, has just done another miraculous thing. He heals this blind beggar. And it's, it's absolutely wonderful. His power encounters really got people's attention. Even though they didn't, may not have known much about Jesus, maybe they haven't heard his teaching yet, but whenever he'd show up, he'd do these miracles. And these miracles had a, a fascinating way of, of, make, of drawing people to Jesus. And it's sort of a, one of the motifs of the kingdom of God. Jesus would display his power, not to just so people would just you know, fall out and be impressed by it. But these power encounters, these miracles got people's attention and the teaching that followed these miracles really, you know, went deeper in the hearts of people because Jesus had gained their trust and he had shown some credibility. And so what we see before this passage that we're going to read, Jesus heals this blind beggar. And so crowds and crowds of people are pressing in because they want to see Jesus. Verse 1, chapter 19, verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. Verse 5, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy, but the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people in their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, Jesus is talking about himself, came to seek and save those who are lost. For the Son of Man, for Jesus, came to seek and save those who are lost, those who are on the outside of things. Now, I love this text because it's short and sweet. I love this text because it's what I call a low-shelf text. Some text that we have to preach as pastors and teachers, really high shelf. we got to really work hard to bring the high stuff down to the low shelf so that people can grab a hold of it and understand it. This is no such text. This is low-hanging fruit. This is accessible. This is not hard to understand. This is not complicated, but it's particularly difficult to live out. And so your excuse this morning can't be, that's too complicated, I don't understand it. Many of us might take the excuse that, hey, that's too hard, that will require a lot from me. And so Jesus is the the teacher. He's teaching us how to relate to those who are on the outside. He's teaching us how to engage this. And we see our brother Zacchaeus has a powerful encounter with Jesus. And as I walk through this text this morning, I want to pull out four observations, four things that stood out to me. And these four things will help us relate to the, uh, the outsider in a way that is winsome, in a way that Jesus would find pleasing. The first thing that stands out is that Luke, the author of this text, frames Zacchaeus early in this story as an outsider. Uh, Luke frames Zacchaeus early in this text as 
an outsider. Not just an outsider, but frames Zacchaeus as a bad dude. Now, Zacchaeus isn't like the cut you with a knife in the alley type of bad dude. He's more of a blue collar, steal your money from you bad dude. You know, get over on you with a law on his side type of bad dude. And to many of us, that's, 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 an, that's an even worse, you know, type of bad dude. You know, the, 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 the cut you in the alley dude is only as dangerous as his knife can reach, whereas, you know, the blue-collar guy who's got the strong arm of the law behind him can do far more damage and is far more dangerous. Luke frames Zacchaeus as an outsider. Verse 1 says, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region. He had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short. And so three things that stand out as he's framed as an outsider. First, Luke tells us that he's a tax collector. Now, I know we don't like the IRS, but this is a different type of tax collector, you see? Um, The Jewish people were under the control of an occupying government, the Roman government, right? And so the Roman government levied heavy taxes on the Jewish people, and the Jewish people really didn't like it. Um, Not to mention the fact that their tax dollars went to support and fund a secular government and fund the worship of pagan gods, and God's Jewish people didn't particularly care for that. Not to mention the fact that Zacchaeus himself was a Jewish man, and so Zacchaeus was essentially working for the man to oppress his fellow countrymen. Not only was Zacchaeus as a tax collector charged with collecting the tax, but he could collect as much money as he wanted. As long as he gave the Romans their cut, he can take as much as he wanted and, 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 and keep the rest for himself. And so you imagine that Zacchaeus probably is not a popular guy among his fellow countrymen. The text also tells us that Zacchaeus had become very rich, got rich off the backs of his fellow countrymen working for the man. He's rich. And not only is his material wealth an issue as it relates to his social relationships with other people, but his wealth uh, has some faith implications as well. His wealth complicates his movement toward the kingdom. In fact, Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is doing here is he's using a common Jewish proverb to describe something that's really, really absurd. You get the picture in your mind of a huge camel, the largest animal in Palestine, going through the eye of of a sewing needle. We don't have to work that through too many times to discover that that's absolutely absurd. That's very difficult. It's nearly impossible. It actually falls within the realm of impossibility. And so Zacchaeus being a rich man really complicates his pursuit of Jesus. It really makes him, you know, uh, at odds with faith because in order to come into the kingdom and embrace it the way that he needs to embrace it, he has to be a servant. He has to be humble. He has to be honest, all the values of the kingdom, and he has to give up certain advantages that come with being not just a wealthy guy, but being a crooked, wealthy guy. Zacchaeus is rich. Not only is he a tax collector, and not only has he become very rich, but he has one other challenge. I don't know how else to say it, but he's, he's short. He's a short guy. And some of us know well the challenges of being, well, vertically challenged. It's just, it can complicate life. Um, but I, I, I think that the writers of the text, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, lead, you know, puts no details, insignificant details in this. And so it really matters that Zacchaeus is a short guy. I think this could easily have some social implications. He's coming up short socially because of what he's chosen to do for a living because of his wealth and how he's gotten his wealth. This has faith and spiritual implication. He's coming up short with God because of the choices that he's made, because of the life that he's leading. He's got all of these things working against him. He's a tax collector. 
He's wealthy, and he's enjoying all of this ill-gotten wealth. He's short in, in, in more ways than physical. He's got all these things working against us. He's our outsider. He's our villain. He, by many accounts, could be a lost cause. This is probably one of our main characters in this story. But Zacchaeus is, you know, should smile because there's somebody else in this story. Jesus is in this story. And if a lost cause or a villain or an outsider or a hopeless case is in the story by themselves, then they just should should hang it up. Uh, But if Jesus happens to be in the story as well, that's a really, really good thing. And so the second observation that I see, other than the fact that he's our villain, is that for some reason or other, Zacchaeus is interested in Jesus. He's interested in Jesus. I told you a couple of weeks ago that Jesus knows how to get our attention. He knows how to get our attention. To the humble and the meek, Jesus shows us humility and weakness, and we're drawn to that in a way that's hard to resist. To the powerful and mighty, the important and the influential, Jesus shows his power and might, and the powerful and mighty are drawn to him in the same way that those who are weak and meek are drawn to him. Zacchaeus, though he's an outsider, he's a wealthy outsider. Though he's a scoundrel, he, he's got some money. And with money comes influence, and with influence comes power. And so Zacchaeus is a powerful guy. And powerful men, no matter what their place and station in, in life, they, they see power and they're drawn to it. They see power and they're interested And I told you just a few verses ago, Jesus heals in in a marvelous way a blind man. And Zacchaeus heard about it. Maybe he even saw it. Maybe there's grumblings about it. Not only this, but people are following Jesus. They're clamoring just to take a selfie with him. They didn't have cameras. I'm trying to bring it to date, right? They're clamoring to just hear his words. And so Jesus has this celebrity, no doubt. Jesus has this Jesus swagger. And, and, and that appeals to Zacchaeus in some meaningful way. And so Zacchaeus is interested in Jesus. Now, this is really, really important. Because if God is interested in you, and he is, if God is interested in the outsider or the scoundrel, and he is, but the scoundrel or the outsider or you, you aren't interested in Jesus, then that's not a, really work, that's not a working equation. But we see here that Zacchaeus is interested in Jesus. And this is very important because it can be hard to see this if you're an insider. And it can be hard to celebrate the fact that somebody who's on the outside of the faith is interested in Jesus. And see, I could be too caught up in why I don't like you. I could be too caught up in your sin and how it infringes on me. I can be caught up in your unrighteousness and see you as a lost cause, and I can miss the signs that you've become suddenly interested in Jesus. I can miss the signs that you are beginning to have this appeal to something higher, to something better, to something with some moral excellence. I can miss that if I'm not careful. I can miss the fact that Zacchaeus is suddenly interested in Jesus, verse 3 said, he tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. Now, I've told you before, as this has come up in other texts, that rich, important men don't run. It's undignified, not in this particular culture. They don't run, and they certainly don't climb trees. Even if you're a short guy, you just don't do that because that's not what we do if we're important. But Zacchaeus seems to not be bothered by those things. Seems to not be interested in those things. He wants to see Jesus. He doesn't have plans to talk to him. He has no reasonable expectation that he would even get an audience with Jesus. He just wants to see him. He just wants to see him. He's interested. He's probably interested because the Holy Spirit is drawing him. Scriptures tell us that no man can come to the Father, unless the Spirit first draws him, and there's something that's pricked his heart. There's something that's beginning to make him aware of his need, and this is a really, really good thing. 
third observation that I see is that Jesus engages Zacchaeus, not only engages Zacchaeus on his own terms and turf, but Jesus engages Zacchaeus on his turf. Now, this is really important. It's something that I hadn't really given a whole lot of thought to prior to this week, but Jesus is in a position of power. Jesus is an insider. Now, if you follow the story of Jesus, he switches from being an insider and an outsider depending on the day, depending on what city he goes into. But in this particular case, Jesus is the man. He's got the paparazzi following him. People are clamoring for his attention, clamoring for an audience, some just, just trying to touch him, just kind of talk to him, just trying to see if he's got some more healing power that he might dispense. And so Jesus is in demand. And in being in demand, he has power. He has influence. And so as an insider, he has power. And so what we see Jesus do is he surrenders some of that power in order to engage with Zacchaeus. Jesus does what it takes to bring an outsider in. He surrenders his power. And he does something that causes him to lose favor among the people that would consider him an insider. He does something that will cause him to lose influence. They, they, they cause people to question his reputation as a holy and righteous man. Jesus lays down power. Verse 5 says, when he came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Now, that's super remarkable. And Jesus says, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Jesus says, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Now, it's interesting that Jesus didn't invite Zacchaeus to church. He says, brother, you are a lost cause. You come to church. We start at 1030, but you get there at 10 uh, because you need to soak this in. Let's just say that Jesus didn't invite him to the prayer meeting. He didn't invite him to the night of worship because maybe salvation might arrest his heart. Jesus does something altogether different. He invites himself to Zacchaeus' home. He invites himself to Zacchaeus' turf. Socially, spiritually, he descends social standing. He descends as it relates to his righteousness to relate to the scoundrel, to relate to the outsider and... This is a really big deal. And some of us will never be winsome to the point where we're win, winning the outsider for Jesus. We will never, ever, ever have any meaningful impact on the outsiders that we deal with day in, day out, whether you're a student and you're at school, whether you work a regular job and you're interacting with people who don't know Jesus, or whether you're just sort of just in and about the world with those who don't no, we don't care about Jesus. Some of us will never win the loss, not because we don't have a passion for it, not because we don't see value in it, because we are unwilling to relate to them on their terms and on their turf. We're unwilling to go to them. We're unwilling to go with them. We're unwilling to look bad. We're unwilling to keep the wrong company. We're unwilling to to, to surrender our spiritual and, and social power. We're unwilling to do away with our appearance of moral excellence in that we don't smoke or drink or chew or run with those that do. We want to keep that intact. And so some of us will never have an impact on the world around us because we like this. This is where you're comfortable. You can just come to church, and you go to your small group, and you can just get around like a box of puppies, just licking on each other and just asking each other how their day was. And what Bible verse did you read today? Oh, I read the same one. What sermons are you listening to? Oh, we're such great Christians. And some of our churches, even though we build these magnificent structures, we're meeting in non-traditional worship spaces like this, we're doing great ministry, but some of our, our, our services are, don't even entertain the possibility that there might be somebody in the room that doesn't know Jesus. There's never a call to come to faith. There's all this insider language where the preacher goes, well, everybody knows about Adam and Eve, and the dude in the back is like, who? Which one of these people is Adam and who's Eve? When I first started this church, uh, uh, I would have totally slapped you across the face in disbelief if you told me that there were grown-ups 
people in their 30s, 40s, 50s that have never stepped foot inside a church. Now, I'm coming from uh, the position of a lifer, right? I've been to church my whole life until I start meeting people that, are, that have never been in church before. I mean, let me get this straight. No weddings, no funerals. You didn't go to a blood drive. You didn't vote in the church. You've never been. You're 50. And then I began to encounter more and more people. It began to change the way we do what we do around. You know, use a lot of insider language. I don't assume that you know who Moses is. I have to define some terms because I'm certain and I'm hopeful that somebody has darkened the door that hasn't heard this yet. And I'm also not counting on them finding us. There's plenty of folks who are dying and going to hell, who are miserable. And they, they interact with you every day and they don't know because you don't care. At least you don't care enough to relate to them on their terms and terms. Some of us will never build for the kingdom in this way. Not because you're bad people, not because you don't love Jesus. It's just some of us aren't willing to pay what it costs in in order to descend into the lives of those who need Jesus. But when Jesus engages Zacchaeus, verse 6 says, Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement, but the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. So I told you a couple weeks ago that you can really get low if you don't care what others think of you. And we frame Jesus as a person who's totally comfortable in his own skin. He just knows who he was. He's sent to the earth by the Father. Jesus like, I'm God in the flesh. What does it matter what you think of me? What does it matter what you tweet about me? What does it matter what look you give me? I'm, I'm sent here by the Father. And he can relate to anybody put a towel around his waist and wash feet and then go out and do revival. He was Jesus. And so he didn't care about what people were thinking. He's on a mission. And this is the mission of God, to seek and save those who are lost. And you can't catch fish unless you go where the fish are. Can't catch fish unless you get your hind in in a boat. And you can't relate to those who are outside unless you get well outside. Don't miss this. (laughs) Don't miss this part. You know, this is a really short passage. And I had to look, you know, in my Bible, get one of those thin line Bibles, and I thought maybe to make this thin, they took some verses out because I didn't see the lecture that Jesus gave them. Maybe I have an abridged version because I didn't see the sermon that Jesus preached to him. Now Zacchaeus said, I got you alone. Thank you for the dinner. It was marvelous. Now we got to talk about you being a scandal, scoundrel. We got to talk about this money that you're stealing from people. We got to talk about how you're a disgrace. Did I miss it? Where's the lecture? Where's the sermon? Where's this self-righteous Facebook post You know, that doesn't mention somebody by name, but you kind of know who they're talking about. What's the ultimatum that Jesus gives him? Now, if you want me to come back here, Zacchaeus, my reputation's on the line. You've got to clean some things up. Jesus gives him none of that. And yet, salvation comes. Salvation comes. Verse 8 says, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. And if I have cheated people, you have, Zacchaeus, on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. I will give them back four times as much. Now, without a lecture, without a sermon, without a, you know, stealthy, self-righteous Facebook post or some ultimatum, Jesus being willing to descend into the life of a scoundrel and to relate with him, perhaps over a meal, in some miraculous way, 
causes Zacchaeus to turn things around. He says, I'll give half of my wealth to the poor. This guy must be loaded. Give half of his wealth to the poor? That's pretty good. You can stop there, and I believe that, you know, you've, you've changed. But he said, no, if I have cheated people on their taxes, and Zacchaeus, let's be real about it, you have. I will give them each uh, back four times as much. Now, you, you don't have to know his net worth, but you don't have to be a mathematician to know that that's a significant amount of money. Perhaps enough to put him in the red. It's certainly enough to uh, put him out of the company of those who are wealthy and influential. But you know that a person is serious about faith when they begin to pay what it costs. Now, Zacchaeus is doing something that we're unwilling to do. He's paying what it costs to be a kingdom man. He's paying what it costs to put his money where his mouth is. He's, he's, he's beginning to walk what's soon to be his talk. And the scripture tells us that not only does Zacchaeus become a better guy and clean up his act, Jesus gives him something even greater. Verse 9 says, salvation, Jesus says, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. And all it took was for Jesus to just go hang out with them. Now, I'm not suggesting at all that you don't, you, know, you don't have to talk about things and work some things out as you disciple other people. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm not suggesting that you, not, you might not have to get into the nitty-gritty and explain the kingdom concepts and explain sin and explain how boundaries have been thrown through. I'm not suggesting that at all, but it seems to be that the most significant thing is that Jesus went where he was. You can't talk to somebody unless you relate to them. You can't really go deep with them unless they're comfortable, and you think a person's going to be more comfortable on our turf than their own? This is remarkable. Don't miss this. A rich man, a very, very rich man has come to faith. We just read a few minutes ago how impossible that was. Now, this wasn't some pessimistic Christian saying how impossible it was. This is Jesus saying that it's difficult, nearly impossible, as absurd as a large camel passing through the eye of a needle for the wealthy to surrender that wealth and all that comes along with it and pick up the humility of the kingdom of God. But it happened. It happened without a lecture, without a sermon, without a song. You know, Luke didn't leave out the sinner's prayer. It didn't happen. Salvation came. How'd it come? The power of God. Zacchaeus saw the power of God, and he saw the humility of the God-man Jesus descending into his life. To relate to him on his terms and his turf. On his terms and on his turf. Now get this. Jesus didn't just descend because Jesus had a few days off and he just wanted to let his hair down. Go off the grid a little bit and just see how the other half lives. This wasn't Jesus. This wasn't his goal. He went down so that he could bring Zacchaeus up. So some of you, uh, you know, I just had to say, you're probably not strong enough to go too far outside. So if you're just, you know, experiencing some freedom from your drug habits, I'm not suggesting that you should go today and, you know, try to win, you know, those over at the trap house. It's probably not your calling. They will win you before it's over. You know, brothers, I'm not, you know, instructing you to start your strip club ministry. You know, leave that to someone else. I'm not going to be winning anybody over there, okay? And so you understand what I'm saying. I'm not talking about being unwise. I'm not talking about putting yourself in harm's way. I'm not talking about being foolish. Some of you know exactly where I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And the goal is to go down so that we might bring them up. To go down. Spiritually, socially, so that we might bring them up. Jesus got low. He got low. And salvation came.
to Zacchaeus' house. And so how do we walk this out practically? How do we walk this out practically? I think the first step for us is simple. We have to remember that the same thing that Jesus did for Zacchaeus, he has done for us. The same thing that he did for Zacchaeus, he has already done for us. Paul says in Romans 5 verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means while you were still strung out somewhere, while you're still giving yourself to anybody who would have you, while you're still looking at porn all night long and you're still being dishonest on your taxes and cheating people and getting over and having a good time doing it, while you're still dropping it in the club, you know, you know Christ died for you. He didn't say, well, as soon as you clean yourself up a little bit and, you know, come up a little bit, then we'll see if it still work. No, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And some of us, our problem is we just got too short of a memory. Yeah, you got your family here today, and yeah, you're worshiping and you're singing today, but where were you a year ago? We couldn't recognize you because life had taken its toll on you because you'd given yourself to anybody and everything. Yeah, you're here today, and you're on the worship team, but where were you at five, six years ago? You were a mess. Yeah, you're clean today, and you don't, you know, objectify women, and you don't step out on your wife, but you forget who you used to be. You forget where you used to be. And if you ever forget who you used to be, it's going to be hard for you to see a scoundrel, an outsider, as a person made in the image of God, much worth, uh, of much worth and value, it's going to be hard for you to go, Lord, that person is where I was. Were it not for the mercy and grace of Jesus, who knows where I would be? That person needs God. Same thing that Jesus did for Zacchaeus. He did for us. Second thing is that we remember that the way God usually shows his love to someone is through someone. In other words, God could, I mean, he's power, he's God. He's, he can zap you if he wants to zap you. He could, you know, send an angel to you know, hover above your bed and tell you what he needs to tell you. But his preferred method, flesh and blood, skin and bones, people. If I pass this microphone around, I just say, just tell me, just tell me, just two or three names of the people who are partly responsible for you being here. Some of you would well with tears in your eyes as you thought of what it must have took for that person to step out of their life to come to where you were. And some of you, the reason that you're here today in this place, as opposed to any place else, is because somebody loved you in a way that you felt like you didn't even deserve. Some of you walked in here for the very first time and you felt like you felt shame. You felt like somehow, someway, everybody knew what you'd been up to. They knew about your past. They knew about the lie you were living. They knew about the abortions you've had. They knew about the huge chasm between you and God. And when somebody came and hugged you and said, welcome, showed you to a seat and invited you to a small group and invited you to connect lunch. And even when they heard your story, they thought, for sure, I tell them my story, they'll be out the door and it'll spread through the church like wildfire and people who didn't even bat an eye because they remember who they used to be. You remember feeling strangely warm. Like maybe you found something different. Like maybe this is like how the heart of God is when it's expressed to people who really are grateful to God because he's brought them a mighty long way, you would discover that God uses people. People like you. People like me. And so what, what that does for us, that creates a sense of urgency. It causes us to spend time in our prayer closet praying for people, but it also causes us to wear out the soles of our shoes going to where they are. Because that's what somebody did for you. God uses people. And God has called us to be the answer to 
to someone else's prayer. God has called us to partner with him to meet people exactly where they are. How else do we walk this out? We consider who's your outsider. Who's your outsider? Your, you know, your, your outsider is, you know, relative to who you are and what you consider in. But as, particularly as it relates to being a person of faith and where you go to work and where you go to school and where you relate to others in the marketplace, who is your outsider? In a really turbulent political climate like this, suddenly we have all sorts of outsiders who happen to just disagree with us because they happen to sit on the other side of a really polarizing political aisle. And so just, you know, months ago, we were, we were all in the same pool and all in the same pot, and all of a sudden, around November 8th or so, you've got a lot of enemies now. You've got a lot of people all of a sudden that you can't stand, and all of a sudden you're questioning their integrity and their Christian faith. Maybe politics is the thing that sets people apart from you. Maybe you relate to people at work who just, I mean, their language is foul. You know, they don't have a great work ethic, and they just make life harder for you. you got to do more work, and it's just so easy to otherize them and just write them off. Lord, deliver me from this. And the Lord might say, no, this is your assignment. This is your assignment not to be like every other Christian they've seen. Maybe your outsider is in your own family. Maybe you're a grandparent and, you know, you're having trouble with your kids, your adult kids, or maybe you're a grandparent and you're closely related, you know, involved or even perhaps raising you know, a grandchild or another family member. Maybe it's right. Maybe your parent and it's your and here's your kid. Maybe you know you are a son or a daughter, and it's your parents. I mean, the list can go on and on. And it's really hard when the outsider is inside your family. But how many of us can relate? Maybe you are a teenager, school age, and you're listening to this, and the outsider is just somebody you go to school with, or large groups of people that you relate to at school. Maybe they make fun of you because of your faith. Uh, maybe they have an atheistic lean, especially if you're a college student. And just, it, it's just great. It's great. It takes great discipline for you to see them as, uh, as valuable in God's eyes. Who, who is the outsider? And sadly for some of us, these outsiders take on, you know, some type of racial or ethnic you know, label, the way you've been raised, your particular worldview, sees large groups of people based on their culture and race and ethnicity as people who are outside and people who are ineligible to receive God's love for you. And that really complicates who God can send you to. I don't want to tell you who your outsider is, but we all have them, and we can't we can't do business with God on this level unless we identify for ourselves who this person is. And for some of you, it's person with a name in the face, and you'll see him tomorrow. Others of you, it's some distant person. Others of you, it's a group of people. You know, I watch enough news and I'm on social media enough to know that that person is our president. I don't say that to get neck deep into really goofy political waters this morning. But I just ask you, have you prayed for him? Have, have you asked the kingdom to break into his life? Have you asked the Holy Spirit to help him govern in a way that is pleasing to the Lord? I think that, you know, if we're unwilling to do that, we should just sort of be quiet about it. Because when the outsider and the scoundrel, whoever you perceive that to be, comes to faith, it changes the whole thing. Think about everybody who Zacchaeus is not ripping off now because he's come to faith. Now, just think about that. And so whoever your outsider is, Listen, would the kingdom break in in their life should be your prayer. Not just because 
is making your life hard, but because this person is valuable to the Lord, who is your outsider? And what would it look like? Worship team, you can come up. What would it look like for you this week to relate to at least one of those outsiders on their terms and on their terms. I know you're a Bible-carrying, tongue-talking Christian, and you haven't been in a bar since 1969, and you accidentally walked in there because you thought it was something else. But maybe, maybe for you, you go have a beer with somebody. (gasps) Beer. I don't drink, so I have root beer. But maybe that, that's what it means for you to relate to somebody on your turn. You, you would be amazed at what that says about you if you can relate to somebody on their own terms and their own turf. I don't have the time to go through all the lists of the different turfs you can explore. My guess is that the Holy Spirit is already bringing some things to your mind. What can you do this week? To go to the, ter- to the turf of somebody who doesn't know Jesus or who could stand to know him more. What would that mean for you? What would that look like? I didn't say prepare your five-minute sermon. Maybe don't even take your Bible. Just go and hang, man. Because if you're living this right, I mean, the Holy Spirit inside of you, they'll see it. They'll see it. They will see it. And so this is your homework. Just go and hang. Somebody say, just go hang. That's you. You say it. Somebody say, just go hang out. Just go hang out. Just go and be and relate. And we'll pray that the Holy Spirit would do the rest. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Lord, were it not for your grace, I, I can't tell you where I'd be. As the songwriter says, I would be on some pointless road to nowhere with my salvation up to me. And so, Lord, may we never, ever forget who we were and where we were and who we could be were it not for your grace. May we never forget how meaningful it was that you came and found us. You didn't call us to you. You didn't whistle for us and, you know, motion us over. You came to us. And when you came to us, you called us higher. You got low. And Lord, you're calling us to do the same. And so the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would strip us of our prejudices. You would strip us of all the self-righteousness that causes us to otherize others. And Father, give us the same heart you had in your son, Christ Jesus. Help us connect with the mission of God to seek and save those who are lost. But help us to do it this, this week. There was a passion for the outside, a heart for the lost. Would you do that for us? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.